0: the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now, money is changing fast in a way that will affect all of us. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. We now make payments with our phones, not with notes and coins. But as payments get faster, cheaper and digital other aspects of money become more complex. Anyone reliant on cash is at risk of being excluded from the new financial system. Digital money is easily traceable, so who gets to monitor what we spend? There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, which are the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. New and more inventive scams arrive by the week. What is the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants who are moving quickly into money? The new Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in this crucial area. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, why not stay in touch with our future releases? You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider. My guest on this episode of the podcast is economist Steve Keane, who is an outspoken critic of mainstream approaches to economics. I've invited Steve onto the podcast to talk about the monetary system and what he sees as the most appropriate form of money for the climate crisis we find ourselves in. Steve, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work?
1: Okay, well, I'm a professor of economics. Having, uh, I was at Kingston University head of school there for a while in London. Now I'm uh, a distinguished research fellow and professor at the University College London, and my specialisation has been working in non-equilibrium monetary uh, energy-based economics, which puts me completely outside the mainstream who live in a barter world, uh, which is always an equilibrium where energy is unimportant.
0: Okay. um, Well, great. Lots of topics to come on to there. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, since we're recording for New Money Review, about money. And Mm -hmm. um, what do mainstream economists get right and what do they get wrong about money?
1: Well, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) They get nothing right and everything wrong. In so many words. And and like, I'll start with a a quote from uh, a tweet from Tony Yates, who's a a, a mainstream economist I know through Twitter. Uh, We had a pretty antagonistic beginning. we have got to actually get on quite well these days. But Tony, out of the blue, put a tweet out a short while, about a year and a half, two years ago, saying that uh, uh, it's best to learn economics without money uh, and then bring money in later for all the confusions that that money causes, all the complexities. And uh, you can even have model banks without money. Yes, he says. Oh, that's total nonsense, in my opinion, and 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 I think as all nowadays in the opinion of the Bank of England and the Bundesbank, capitalism is fundamentally a monetary economy. You have to money the monetary system. And when you look at it, everything about uh, money and debt and so on that the mainstream believes is false. It's really effectively the same as going from uh, the make vision of the uh, solar system where the earth is the centre and the uh, uh, the the sun, the moon, and the planets and stars orbit around it. To the vision we know, which is correct, that the Earth, the, the sun is the center of the solar system, and we're one of several planets. So it, it's it's completely wrong. They they use barter when it should be monetary. They presume the economy is in equilibrium when it's far from equilibrium, and they argue that government debt is bad and private debt is good, and Though it's not black and white in either inspection, fundamentally private debt is dangerous and government debt is safe.
0: right. so is it is it fair then to say that money has a much greater role in 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 your view of the world than is assumed by classical economics?
1: Yeah, I mean classical economics or neoclassical economics really wants to ignore the monetary system. So they come up with a couple of models of how banks operate, and then banks don't turn up again in the macroeconomics. So, the standard neoclassical macroeconomic model has no role for banks, no role for private debt, and no role for money. So uh, they they have models of banking. They call the fractional reserve model of banking, um, and the loanable funds model of banking. And in both cases, what they uh, certainly with the fractional reserve banking model, they say, well, the government determines how many reserves are created, and the government determines the ratio between reserves and loans, and therefore the government controls the money supply. And if anything goes wrong with the money supply, it's the government's fault. But that's they they dismiss it at that point, and the macroeconomic models are models of a barter economy.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned the Bank of England and the Bundesbank. I I, I know from having read the uh, I think the page on the Bank of England's website that they say you know banks create money, so yeah. Um, this is actually a quite a a change of a shift in, in view amongst the governments and central banks. the submission.
1: Yeah. Um. It it's, it's a change in view, but the, the, as usual the mainstream economists haven't understand what it meant. So they, they trivialize it and so we've always said banks create money. you know we have this reserve fraction reserve money creation system. so the government creates a hundred dollars, hundred pounds worth of uh, money by giving it to a um, welfare recipient. the welfare recipient puts100 dollars 100 pounds in a bank. the bank hangs on to ten pounds and lends out 90 and through a chain reaction process, that one hundred pounds of government-created money becomes a thousand pounds of bank-created money, and that's to so we, say so we've taken here banks create money. And the trouble is, the Bank of England and the Bundesbank both said reserves have nothing to do with money creation. The mere act of a bank creating a loan creates money at the same time. Yeah, and that is a that is a dramatic shift in the understanding of central banks, and it now puts them well ahead of the academic economists that central banks used to uh, effectively reproduce. Right. So,
0: so uh, in your view of the world, um, the level of private debt in an economy is, is one of the most important ah, we- indicators, and it's something that we should all monitor closely. So wh- why is that?
1: Because private debt is part of aggregate demand credit rather the change in private that is part of aggregate demand. And this is the part not only the mainstream got wrong, it's something which most of my heterodox friends didn't understand either. and this is a original contribution by me to to make the case that credit is part of aggregate demand. Um, so if you th- the way that the, the mainstream models banks um, as a, um, uh, the act, act, act of lending, one of the models is called loanable funds. And the idea in loanable funds that you know you might have a deposit account, at Barclays and I've got one uh, also at Barclays to make it simple in the same bank and you you lend me money so you transfer uh, you know, £100 from your account to my account, your account goes down by £100 so you've got less money to spend. Mine goes up by 100 I've got more money to spend. You will be less able to buy, I'll be more able to buy. So the lending doesn't change aggregate demand. So if you lend me money, it changes who in the economy has money to spend. It doesn't change the aggregate amount of money or the spending and that's their model of lending now in the real world the way that lending spending happens is you get a, a you take out a loan with a bank and a bank gives you a deposit at the same time so the yep. bank's assets rise and your and and the and the bank's liabilities rise at the same time and then you borrow that money to spend it so nobody borrows for the sheer pleasure of being in debt you borrow to spend And therefore, the money which is created by a bank when it lends you becomes a debt for you and an income for the person on whom you spend that. So credit is part of aggregate demand. And I've proven that um, and published it in a couple of recent papers. And it's coming out in my new book, which is coming out in October, The New Economics and Manifesto. So it's provably the case that if you have a banking sector which creates money by creating loans, that that a new new money, new debt created and that a debt is the amount, amount of dollars or pounds you owe at some point in time. Credit is the change in the amount of debt you owe. So credit is the change in debt. And the change in debt becomes one for one, a change in aggregate demand as well. So if credit is positive, aggregate demand is rising. If credit is negative, so people are paying off more than, if repayments exceed new loans, credit is negative. And that, that is a huge explanation for the volatility in the real economy because the ups and downs of credit are much more volatile than the ups and downs of demand coming out of our income and so on.
0: So if an economy becomes too dependent on private debt, that means yeah. it's becoming more unstable and it's, it's more prone to to destabilizing shifts in the overall level of credit.
1: Yeah, and this is what happened back in 2008. So if you look at the level of private debt in America back in 1945 after the Second World War and the Great Depression, the level of private debt was about 30% of GDP. Uh, in, in 2008, it hit 170% of GDP, virtually a five-fold increase in the level of debt. And the level of change in debt uh, went from being of the order of 2 and 3 and 4% of GDP to 15%. So if you look at total demand in the year, American economy in 2007, it was GDP or rather it was turnover of existing money plus 15% from newly created money, which was created to spend. So they say credit-based demand was 15% of GDP in 2007. It was minus 5% in 2010. So you had effectively a 20% of GDP turnaround at the level of demand in the economy. And it was more extreme for somewhere like Spain, which went from say credit being 40% of GDP in 2008. To minus twenty percent in 2010-11, and you had you know almost a sixty percent of GDP turnaround caused by credit.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I remember from reading your blog at the time of the two thousand and eight financial crisis, the charts you produced then about the level of private debt in certain economies, yeah. the US, the UK, Australia. Um, you mentioned Spain just now. So what? in the us we saw some deflation of house prices after 2008 but in the uk and the australia there was never really any um any correction or any major correction mm. and um you know what's what's that due to is that just down to political decisions in the countries concerned not to allow this to happen or is it just something that's been stored up for the future
1: that's so you- that's partially it's the government not wanting it to happen i mean the yeah. government is- Government is more um, inclined to rescue the financial sector than it is to rescue the real economy these days. So the, the whole the whole thought of collapsing um, house prices is a horror story for a, for governments, and they'll do whatever they can to boost demand for housing to keep house prices rising. Um, yeah. And particularly Australia and Canada have made a made a you know a, a national sport of rising house prices, and the UK and well, other they're all pretty extreme. Um, but what actually fundamentally what drives house prices uh, is uh, quantitative easing. It definitely had an impact here. But the basic mechanism driving house prices is changes in the level of mortgage debt. So if you look at um, uh, what is demand for housing, demand for housing is new mortgages divided by how many houses are for sale. Yeah, that's like that converts um, the, the number of, of the amount of money being spent into the the price per house. So you get a relationship between new mortgages, and the price level. There's therefore a relationship between change in new mortgages and change in the price level. And doing the empirical work on that, the correlation is extremely high. We've done causation analysis as well for the American economy. So the causation goes from change in new mortgages to change in house prices. Far more so than it goes in the opposite direction. And one of the reasons why Australia and Canada continue having rising house prices is they had rising levels of new mortgage debt. And the government continues encouraging that, um, you know, 1st home buyer grants, um, uh, you know, rent, uh, buy-to-rent type schemes, all this sort of stuff is all there to keep pressure on house prices, keep them rising.
0: But this rising level of uh, private debt in the form of mortgages is also associated with rising inequality because the the, the difference between the haves and the have-nots in all these countries is getting larger and larger. So it's an unstable system.
1: Yeah, that's actually another interesting extension. I've got to go beyond talking about balance sheets here to the modeling I've done of financial dynamics. And my model of Heim, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis uh, brought debt into a model of a dynamic, non-equilibrium model of the economy where you had wages and profits on on one hand, and you had so a rate of profit and a level of wages. Uh, and I brought banking in there so firms would borrow from banks to invest. That therefore gave you a third class, bankers, whose interest earnings were based on the level of debt compared to their share of the banker's share of GDP was related to the interest rate times the debt ratio divided by uh, the GDP. And what I expected in the model when I first built it was that the rising level of debt would be a cost for the capitalist because in my model, I had the capitalist borrowing the money. So capitalists would borrow money from from banks to build factories in which they'd hire workers. And I thought, well, a high level of private debt will mean more of profit goes towards the financial sector and less goes to the real economy. I simulated the model and much to my surprise, that wasn't what happened. What happened instead was the workers' share went down. As the banker's share went up, the workers' share went down and the capitalist share continued fluctuating around the same level. I went into analysing, and I can explain that people need need to know what's the logic there. But the basic story is a rising level of private debt is paid for by the working class, even if the working class is not the part class doing the borrowing, but the capitalists are. Um, it ends up that the wages are residual in the system, and a rising uh, the, the the profit share sort of bounces around a level set by the, the investment desires of capitalists. Um, and the other, the remainder of the income goes to either bankers or workers. And it doesn't really matter to capitalists who gets it, workers or bankers. So a rising level of debt means a falling share going to the workers.
0: Yeah. So in other words, the workers are being tricked by
1: by being you know, convinced to borrow more and more money to buy houses. Whereas no, no, do, it doesn't, the, the, even, the, doesn't even include that. Okay. But this is saying, if, if you simply had investment, if, if you simply had the best of all possible world in the sense of the bank's... Lent money for investment, which meant building new factories, yeah. you know, new, new productive capacity, new technology, all that sort of thing. You still get the result that the debt level rises. It's the working class paying for it, not the not the capitalists. Yeah. Now, when you add in that people borrow money to gamble and rising house prices, then you get an even worse outcome. Okay, because if you borrow money to build a factory, you've increased the capacity of that economy to repay the debt that it's taken out. But if yeah. you buy to drive up house prices, you add to the debt level without doing anything about productive capacity.
0: Yeah, let's let's return to um, money for a second. So, w- yeah. since two thousand and eight, the um, the governments around the world, central banks have um, in, started um, you know ma- major quantitative easing programs. They've cut interest rates to zero or near zero, in some cases now to negative territory. What has been the impact of those policies? And you know, have they made the underlying situation better or worse?
1: They've made it worse. And the ironic thing is, you actually see them admitting why they did it, and for once what Central Bank wanted to do is what Central banks actually did, and that is to increase asset prices. So if you read Bernanke back from 2009, 2010 when he's justifying starting QE, his justification is that it will, the quantitative easing will, by buying bonds, mean that the financial sector from which they, where they bought most of the bonds from. will will not have have to have bonds for an income earning asset. So the alternative is shares. So they'll buy shares and the shares will rise in price. That will cause a wealth effect and the wealth effect will stimulate consumption. That was the overall logic. Now, generally speaking, that was a a reasonable description of what they actually did. What it meant was they made the wealthy wealthier. And they thought that would then stimulate consumption. Now. If you have any knowledge of income distribution and spending at all, you don't have to be a Keynesian to know this, even though the wealthy have got much more money, they spend the money they've got much more slowly than the poor would do if they got the same amount of money. Um, And therefore, what, what that has done is make the wealthy wealthier, slightly stimulate consumption, but drive up asset prices, amplifying the inequality that was caused by the rising level of private debt in the first place
0: yeah and presumably the the policy of, of stimulating consumption at all costs is now running into you know the, the, the major problem of, um, of environmental depredation and climate change and all these things which are kind of natural barriers to, to growth at any cost
1: economics. yeah I mean then neoclassical economists are, are largely responsible for the travesty we're seeing there as well uh, yeah. because they, they have completely un- misunderstood what climate change is treated it as something as benign as a sunny day in England versus a cold day, uh, and completely uh, misrepresented the dangers, the risks involved. So, yeah, uh, what what mainstream economists did to stuff up the monetary system has got nothing of what they've done to stuff up the climate.
0: Right. So um, where do we go from here? I mean, we're obviously not in a great situation. What's the best way out of where we find ourselves?
1: Well, what I've been arguing for for a long time is a debt jubilee. And I never thought it had a chance of becoming a policy. So I wrote it up in about 2011, 2012, and then haven't developed it since then. But when COVID came along, I thought there's actually a possibility that we will see a, a debt jubilee. So it was worth um, revising the model. And the idea in a modern debt jubilee is that you use the, the, the government creates money by spending more than it gets back in taxation. The banks create money by lending more than they get back in repayments. So you could have a modern debt jubilee, have it in which case the government would create, let's say a hundred thousand pounds per adult using the UK situation. Uh, every adult gets a hundred thousand pounds in their bank account with the requirement. And you could actually enforce this, you know, by, by a, 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 a legal structure or by, um, uh, an accounting structure. Um, if they have debt, they must pay their debt down by that amount. If they don't have debt, they get a cash injection, which I would require them to buy shares, where the shares had to be newly issued corporate shares. So when you bought the shares, the money went to the corporation, not to a speculator. And that money had to be used to pay down the level of corporate debt. Now, I've I've done a a model in my Minsky software of this being done using American numbers. And if you gave every American adult uh, $100,000 in cash created this way, and then said, pay the debt down if you have debt, buy, buy corporate shares if you don't have uh, debt, that was equivalent to about 110% of GDP in, one, in a, in a pay, set of payments, which would reduce the private debt level from 170% to about, about 60% of GDP, which is back in the range it was back in the 1950s.
0: Okay. not can I just stop you there steve so this is this this sounds similar in a way to what um governments have been edging towards since uh, coronavirus you know, the, the helicopter payments we've seen in some countries mm. uh, per, which are which are you know per person, but you'd add a you'd add a condition that if you are if you are in debt, you have to you can't just go and spend that money or use, use yeah. it to buy bitcoin. you'd have to repay the debt uh,
1: yeah you have to have to repay the debt yeah, so uh, it's, not, it's not something to be spent. It's something to be used to uh, to repay existing debt so there's no money creation out of it so in it's a, a, pri-
0: a debt de- jubilee of private debt it's not it's not public debt
1: yeah public debt is, is not a problem in fact it increases public debt when you first yeah. do it but yeah. it it, it, it take, means public debt takes the place of private debt so your aggregate debt level doesn't change and then i didn't expect this but because this idea is on a per capita basis everybody gets the same amount of money regardless of social class uh of course, there are far more workers, far more poor people than rich people. So you know, Rupert Murdoch gets a hundred thousand; you get a hundred thousand. Rupert barely notices it. For you, it's a major fall in your debt level. What that means is, and as we did the, sim- the modelling and simulation, you have more money to spend. There's no change in the amount of money, but you have more. You have less obligations for the financial sector and more money to spend on goods and services, and it actually stimulates the economy. And even without uh, money creation, you get an economic boost out of it. So, as a result of that, the debt levels fall. And in the aggregate, in the long, like after about 10 years, you have not just lower private debt, but lower government debt as well. Okay.
0: And to, to, to what extent would this also help to address any of the, the problems of climate change and sustainability?
1: Well, the main thing here is uh, we, as we've seen with COVID itself. Uh, if you cut off people's capacity to work, they go bankrupt. Yeah. So your private sector can collapse. If we didn't have government spending to uh, give people additional money during the crisis, there would have been a complete collapse of the uh, monetary system. A a private money system alone would have collapsed during COVID. Well, that's even worse during climate change. Uh, So many businesses are going to be shut down. We're going to have to reduce our energy consumption drastically at some point the cash flows that companies make out of the current volume demand will disappear, multiple bankruptcies could occur, and there's no way we can private sector our way out of this. We need government money creation. So the same idea I'm talking about now as a way of addressing COVID, uh, and reducing the financial burden of COVID, and reducing the burdens from back in 2007, uh, that could be done to basically eliminate private debt as a problem while we deal with climate change. The last thing you want is somebody being unable to, you know, take part in addressing climate change because they've gone bankrupt.
0: Yeah. So l- let's assume that this debt jubilee, you know, could happen. I- I've heard um, a podcast you recorded a couple of months ago with um, Tracy Alloway and Joe Weiss of Bloomberg where you said that this would never happen. But it sounds like you're still, um, you know, pursuing the idea and, you you know, you hope that it might happen. Um, let's assume it does. Mm. What? How should we redesign the monetary system for afterwards, is it, would it just have constraints on the level of private debt uh, per economy or do we need to make some other more fundamental changes to you know, yeah, how interest rates work or negative yeah, interest I mean, rates?
1: For, for a start, you make the level of credit and the level of private debt economic indicators. You don't ignore them as the mainstream yeah. has been doing. So that's, that's even that is a major change. Um, secondly, you stop banks being able to lend for asset speculation at the moment. Mortgage, mortgage. What, what is actually driving house prices is change in new mortgage debt. So the banking sector itself is causing the indebtedness we have now, uh, and causing a high house prices as well. So I'd change the rules around um, around lending to so say that there's the maximum amount you can lend to buy an asset like a house is some multiple of the income earning capacity of that house, not the person buying it, but of the house itself. So if you and Rupert Murdoch are competing over the same uh, house, both of you could only borrow the same amount of money. And the person who would win would be the one who, inverted commas, saves more. Um, so the idea is to break the positive feedback or amplifying feedback between uh, change in mortgages and change in house prices, eliminate that. Uh, I, I, I would want, I still want to have banks involved in money creation. But I want that to be money creation for firms for working capital and for entrepreneurs And that may involve letting banks take an equity stake in companies rather than taking a debt stake to encourage entrepreneurial lending. Um, So I I see a role for private money creation, but fundamentally you would have much more government money creation and that comes through having uh, sustained deficits because the deficit creates money for the private sector without creating a debt for the private sector.
0: Okay. Um, Now, there's been a great deal of interest in um, alternative Views of economics of economic history since the financial crisis a renewed interest in Marxist theories A a lot of interest in Austrian economics Um, You you yourself have done a lot of work in complexity theory. Um, Is this a very exciting time to be an economist?
1: Um, It's a very scary time because I think economists are going to cause the collapse of capitalism Not myself, obviously I'm fighting against the mainstream but the reason we have the ecological crisis is not just because Exxon and um, the coal companies wanted to continue polluting to make money for themselves. Economists, neoclassical economists, having a fantastical view of how the economy operates, believing that the economy could not be challenged by anything, the economy can cope with anything we throw at it, therefore assumed climate change was no big deal. And their own uh, numerical estimates of the damage from climate change are absurdly bad, absurdly wrong. And that's led us to believe that climate change will only knock a few percentage of GDP in the future and, and let less than 0.05% uh, effect on the growth rate, which is rounding error. You can't even measure that in economic statistics. That's the sort of argument they've been making and they are profoundly wrong. So... Um, It's exciting in one sense, but I think part of the excitement should be we've got to shut down economics departments around the globe. It is a dangerous belief system for the sustainability of human society.
0: Right. So you think that continuing with the economic theories we have will land us at a kind of... Totalitarian command, you know, fully public uh, sector. Yeah, I I uh, think that's a command driven economy, which is I think that's
1: inevitable in the short term, meaning the next 20 to 30 years. We're not going to get the market system could have got through climate change if we'd implemented the sort of policies the limits to growth put forward back in 1972 73. Uh, And of course, the economists were responsible for completely trashing those recommendations and trashing the analysis and saying, let's go for growth, go gung ho. And the result of that is we're now consuming three times as many resources as we were back in the 1970s. Our load on the planet is that much higher. The rate at which we have to change to not cause ecological catastrophe for ourselves, as well as the other species on the planet, is so much greater that there's no way a market can do it. It's effectively going into a war economy with rationing for the private sector redirection of everything towards reducing our carbon load in particular, uh, pulling back our damage to the rest of the biosphere to reduce uh, damage to biodiversity. Uh, And in that situation, capitalism without government money flow would collapse completely. So the only prospect is government control. And that's going to be the direct result of neoclassical economists.
0: And, and presumably government control country by country with, with conflicts between those countries.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the the question is, where is the first major catastrophe going to strike? Uh, I, I don't particularly recommend the, the new Kim Stanley Robinson book, um, Ministry for the Future, but it's it starts with an opening chapter where there's a catastrophe where everybody thinks there will be a catastrophe in India with what they call a wet bulb uh, catastrophe where the temperature and humidity are such that people can no longer sweat to reduce their heat levels so within three to six hours a healthy person will die of heat exposure and that's the opening scene of the novel and all these people die in a city in india but we saw what happened in canada just earlier this year with a heat dome yeah it's quite possible this could happen in another country and I'm, i think we won't actually wake up to how serious climate change is until we have a genuine catastrophe as in Something like a wet bulb catastrophe or a, a superstorm, killing hundreds of thousands of people in one location and saying, This is a taste of what's coming your way, then we'll start taking climate change seriously, but until that happens, I think we're going to continue down the same train, making the ultimate situation worse yeah
0: what what, what can we do? I mean if anything, um, at an international level to improve coordination to to have a sounding board um, I'm thinking about the, you know, the current economic and um, or monetary system set up that we've inherited from Bretton Woods and then the, mm. the dollar-based system that's been in place <clears> since 1971, um, which seems to be breaking down. You know, is, w- what if any steps could we make globally to try and improve coordination of policies
1: and and, and share the burden? I think that's a mistake. You think I, what's I, a mistake? I, I'm trying to coordinate. Okay. Right. I think it's one of our problems because I mean if you, you may have seen a video uh, recently of, of uh, investigative journalists talking to a couple of lobbyists in Washington for the coal industry, pretending they were you know researching for them as being yeah. lobbyists for the, and, and the guys saying, "Look, we support carbon pricing because we know it'll never happen, yeah. And so the 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 coal companies are very avidly going after either carbon pricing and carbon taxes because they know they won't get through Congress and we can look like we're doing the right thing and end up doing nothing at all. I think a similar thing applies to international agreements. People jet off to Scotland, they speak for three weeks, they come back home and it, 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 an immense uh, flurry of activity leading to no change back at home. So I would rather do it on a national level. And my proposal, one of the proposals i put forward Uh, you'll find with a website called carbonwatchdog.org is to give everything a carbon price as well as a money price and to have central banks using digital currencies distributing a carbon ration every day to every person on a per capita basis. So again, you get the same carbon ration as Rupert Murdoch. Uh, When you buy something, you pay the money price and the carbon price. Um, the money price, of course, you're earning earning money from your own uh, economic activities. The carbon price depends upon what you get as a per capita basis you know, every day. You would, you and I, you would, you know, anybody earning uh, like anything less than not at the top ten percent of income, and maybe the top five percent, would not exhaust their carbon credit. But those earning more than the top, you know, in the top five percent, would exhaust their carbon credit and have to buy carbon credits off the poor. Right. So the idea is to put a, a major pressure on the rich to want to reduce carbon consumption and on the poor to favour carbon rationing. Yeah. And doing it at a national level, uh, you can bring in at the national level. There's no way you'd get that working at the international initially. So I think yeah. we have to wait we, we, we have to work with the political units we actually are part of and none of us are part of an international community, but yeah. all of us are part of a nation state and we could do it at the nation state level and then have nation states taking that on as the seriousness came home to them. What
0: about things that we can do at a subnational level like local level, local government level, community level, you know, are there, are there incentives we can bring in there? You no, know, I
1: mean in some ways well, local councils could do that themselves. Yeah. The trouble is that the um, you know again there'd be uh, potentially uh, you know one local council say move to our council we don't charge you this uh, we don't have this universal carbon price imposed on on everything else. Um yeah. But, but certainly, local councils, you know, local activity is necessary. I think a huge amount of localization of production and consumption is going to come out of this because a huge amount of energy consumption and a huge amount of the damage we're doing to the biosphere comes out of international and domestic, even domestic trade. So the smaller your economic circle, of course, the less you can produce in terms of specialisation and economies of scale, but the less damage you put on the rest of the biosphere as well. And I, I think long, long global chains, production chains, all that sort of stuff is going to collapse, and production will come back on shore as, as part of the reducing the carbon load we're putting on the planet.
0: Looking at the you know the next few years um, as you know indicators for how the world is progressing in addressing some of these issues you've been describing, how ind- individual countries are progressing in addressing them. What are the key indicators you're looking at?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of macroeconomic um, analysis, I've, I've specialized in analyzing credit, of course, and I continue doing that. But I really think we're in the final. If we're lucky, we're in the final thirty years of what of the crisis of climate change. Uh, if we're unlucky, we're the final decade. And my focus really now is on getting preparing for having to reverse direction from the damages of climate change. So I think there's absolutely no chance of us taking uh, pr- pr- perspective, you know, proactive action, With that, the time for that is well and truly passed. It'll be once we realise how dangerous the new climate is to our survival as a civilization and maybe even as a species, then we've got to go in reverse. So I want to see mechanisms to enable us to go into reverse without causing mass starvation and without causing a total breakdown in social systems. And that's unfortunately the, the focus I've got now. Another one is I want to... Um, I, I, I believe that what we call the crime of eco side, which is being developed right now, um, is has is people are still thinking about it in terms of Exxon and coal companies and so on. I want it to be also extended to the economists who've managed to provide the nonsense uh, that has supported a lot of the climate change denialists like Bjorn Longborg. Um, so I want to be involved in prosecuting them as well.
0: Okay. Well, some uh, some very sobering predictions, but also some very interesting topics to you've covered, Steve. Thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to talk to me and uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Delighted, Paul.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, You can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.